With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 603. In 603, we interviewed prosecutor Colleen Barnett, who both tried and convicted Sandy Melgar. This episode succeeded in creating a lot of questions, a lot of comments, and is really starting to shape a lot of opinions from the listeners. We're starting to see a lot of people, because at this point we've only heard the prosecution side of the case. We heard a story in episode one, and then from there, we've just heard the kind of the guilty argument. And so there's people that are starting to lean that way. And it's, it's interesting seeing people on both sides of the issue right now trying to have these discussions and trying to assess out whether Sandy Melgar is innocent or guilty. It, it's, it's worked in creating some really good discussion. But, you know, at this point, we're way, way, way too early into the investigation to make a determination as to whether Sandy Melgar is innocent or guilty, as we've only had three episodes and we've only presented one side. But like I said, this episode created a lot of questions, and uh, this will be, I'll tell you guys, uh, hopefully, hopefully, we don't know how long it's going to be, but we're hoping it's going to be short and sweet, because uh, we are, Mike and I are leaving tomorrow morning, we're recording this early on Monday, usually we do Wednesdays, we're recording this early because tomorrow or morning, bright and early, Mike and I are getting the truck and headed to Texas. We got work to do in West Memphis, Dallas, and Houston. Uh, we do not have a release date for Ed yet. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, we will have one because this will drop five days from now on Friday. But, you know, we're assuming in the next week or two he's going to be released. We know we got work to do down there, and we've got an appointment with the prosecutor at the end of next week, uh, excuse me, or the end of this week to go over case documents and stuff like that. So we're just going to go ahead and go. Um, but for that reason, we have to make this uh, kind of short and sweet because we're going to be working in a hotel room for the next at least week. So all that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Our first question comes from Nina. She writes, Barnett makes some very valid points. What I can't seem to wrap my head around is the way Jamie was killed. Why would a woman take the chance of stabbing her husband to death? It seems to me there would be too much danger of him overpowering her. Firstly, due to her medical issues, she may be too weak or lose strength, especially considering the amount of trauma to his body. And secondly, at the risk of sounding sexist, she's a woman. Innately, we presume that men are stronger than us. It would make more sense to me that if Sandy were the killer, she would use the gun that we already know was in the house. It's quicker and easier. What do you take away from this, Bob? 
Yeah, I've said that was one of the first things that you and I discussed, Mike, right after we started looking at the case was, yeah, yeah if, if she was going to, if someone's going to kill their their spouse, man, there's a lot of easier ways to do it right? than a, than than physical hand-to-hand combat and then this whole elaborate uh, work that was done to stage the crime scene, if that's what happened. Um, so, yeah, I agree with her. And, and again, we do know there was a gun right there in the closet. I mean, there's poison. There's there's a there's a lot of different ways that it could go down. I mean, we're going to have to keep digging into the evidence and see how things shake out because we really don't have a clear picture yet of the crime scene. We're getting there. We did get a full set of crime scene photos, like I mentioned last week from the DA's office. But this set, they're, re- they're redacted. The uh, Jim's body's redacted out of all of them. Um, so we're working on getting the rest of the file and photos so that we can do a professional crime scene analysis of that. And, and Jim Clemente's already already hooked. He was uh, texting me last night about the case. He's been listening. And so uh, Jim is going to be doing, once we get all that, he'll be doing a profile for us on the crime scene. Okay, our next one's from David. If I heard correctly, the pillowcase was found under the leg of the chair, which had been moved out of the way of the door. If this was the case, I find it very suspicious. Why would a pillowcase be under the leg of a chair in the bathroom? In my opinion, uh, from the crime scene photos I've seen and the family members that were there that I've spoken to, that was a bit of a misrepresentation on the part of Miss Barnett. So, yes, it was a pillow sham. That's a fact. And that on its face seems very odd. But what she failed to mention is there were two pillow shams in that bathroom. Uh, They were used as bath mats or rugs. And I got the story how that happened was uh, Sandy was at Goodwill and she found these two pillow shams that matched the decor in the bathroom perfectly. So she just used those as rugs. And there were two in there. Uh, the bathroom had a his and hers sink on, on opposite walls. And there was one in front of the his sink and one in front of the hers sink. By saying the pillow sham was right there under the chair, first of all, is inaccurate. From the crime scene photos I've seen, the pillow sham was not under the leg of the chair. It was bunched up like the chair had pushed it away. And where it's bunched, so when the, when the chair was moved from when the closet door was open, it was moved towards the sink that was right there next to the closet door, uh, which is where the family says that's where that rug was always kept or that pillow sham. And so to me, it just looks like if that, I can, I can say this, if in fact that's where that pillow sham was, and the chair was pushed out of the way towards that sink, that's exactly what it would look like. Now, does that mean that's exactly what happened? I can't say that, but certainly th- that makes sense. It makes much more sense to me than assuming that Sandy used the sham to pull off a Houdini-style trick to pull the, the chair against the door, and somehow the sham ended up not in the closet with her, and the family says that the chair was not sitting on top of the rug, that the rug was over on the other side of the room. Danielle says, so if Sandy tied herself up and locked herself in the closet, there was no guarantee that someone was going to find her before she died. Her family members could have decided not to go in the house and just go home. So in an effort to make it look like a break-in, she risked dying a slow, painful death in her closet? Yeah, that's that's an odd one, too. Um, and, and again, you know, there was, we make the assumption that she knew the family was going to come in and, and let her out. But the fact is, she couldn't have known that. And and when we listened to, when we heard Marissa, the uh, Melgar's niece, talk about that their experience that night, they were ready to go. The door was locked. They couldn't get in. And so they were just going to leave. And it was it was Herman who said, well, let's just, we can go in through the garage. Let's just go through the garage. And the rest of the family was like, no, nah, let's just, it doesn't look like they're here or, or it doesn't look like they want us in there or whatever. They, maybe they're changing her in the bathroom. 
So yeah, they they just as easily 50-50 shot could have just walked away from that scene. So if that was the plan, it was a terrible plan because the way she was locked in the closet, she couldn't get out. It wasn't like she could just unlock it from from inside. I mean, the chair was propped up against the closet door from the outside. So if she had changed say say it was a setup and she had changed her mind, there would have been no way that she could have got back out of the closet. Kendra says, Bob, is there a piece of evidence or lack thereof that compelled you to take this case? I'm trying to stay off the fence and be patient, but I don't see the wrongfully accused part yet. And then also along those same lines, Thomas writes, you've always said you'd never take a case or start a season if you weren't confident there was a wrongful conviction. But in episode 603, you indicated you weren't sure either way. How do you explain this? So I guess to answer both questions, when I say I'm not sure either way, I'm saying exactly what I mean. It may seem inconsistent, but it's not. When I looked at the case and I looked at some of the evidence, and some of it we haven't, a lot of it we haven't talked about yet, and you'll start to get some indications through this episode today, I think, uh, and then over the next few weeks, I think you'll start to see a little bit of a difference. But to me, there were definite indications that this very likely could be a wrongful conviction. If I had to say what's my best guess right now, I think that she was falsely accused and wrongfully convicted. However, I am not sure. I have not seen the entire police file. I have not seen all of the unredacted crime scene photos. I haven't been able to fully investigate the case. So, yes, I have an opinion. I don't hide the fact that I have an opinion. Of course, I think that this likely is a wrongful conviction or I wouldn't have taken the case, as I've always said. However, I cannot be sure until the case is fully investigated. There will come a time, as those of you who have been with me for a long time, there will come a time where I will choose a side. Uh, and it's not just an arbitrary choosing of sides, but once we're through with the investigation, usually I can come to an answer, at least in my mind, an answer as to whether the convicted is innocent or guilty. But right now, I can't do that just simply and solely based on lack of evidence at this point in either direction. But are there certain pieces of evidence that led me to take the case? Absolutely. And you're going to hear about them very soon. Bo says, your interview with Miss Barnett was strong and well-managed. She seemed confident about her story. I'm writing because I looked at the Dateline clip of her describing how the attack happened, and I was left wondering if there was blood evidence that supported her claim. It's hard to imagine how her suspect would not be covered and cast off in that scenario. In, in the Dateline clip, it was a, an attack from behind where he was cut across his chest from his chest to his neck. Right, and for those of you who've seen it, that would be... They did show in the Dateline uh, her demonstrating that. So it was like a, a single cutting motion from Jaime's chest up across his neck and into his face. Uh, as far as whether or not there's blood evidence to support that, I don't know yet. She says that she she was kind of ambiguous about it, but she says, you know, we, we had blood experts look at that, at the blood patterns, and it seems like the killer was standing behind him and made that cut as the first cut. I don't know. I haven't seen the evidence. Our experts haven't looked at it yet. Uh, but as far as the killer being covered with blood, I believe the blood experts on both sides both agreed that the killer would have been covered in blood. And even from the redacted crime scene photos that we do have, it was a bloody, horrible scene. I mean, I mean, there was fists flying and and knives flying or a knife flying. It was not a simple murder scene. This was a fight. 51 injuries. It was a fight. And they said the and there's blood everywhere. And they, they definitely said that the killer would have been covered in blood, yes. 
Lauren says, would Prosecutor Barnett be willing to ever come back on the show if we discover evidence that could change her opinion on the case? I think that she will. As a matter of fact, she said she was willing to take a look back at those things. And, you know, when we ended the conversation after the tapes were done rolling, you know, I asked her if she'd be willing to come back and talk to us again if we find anything else. And she said she would. So, yeah, hopefully she would be. Yes. Renee says, I don't think this has been mentioned, but the prosecutor said that Jim had defensive wounds. Did Sandy have any marks or scratches on her consistent with the struggle? So here's a first bit of evidence that might lean you the other way uh, without getting too detailed into it. As I mentioned, this was a horrible event. This was a fight. Jim was, in fact, covered in defensive wounds. He did not go down without a fight. And the answer to this question is Sandy Melgar didn't have a mark on her. Uh, The best they could come up with is she had a tiny, tiny scratch on one of her fingers that and I'm talking to scratch like a paper cut that was days old on one of her fingers uh, other than that not a mark on her not a bruise other than bruises from on her arms um, that looked like they were from the bindings uh, in the in her ankles nothing to indicate that she'd been in a fight with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. Nicole says, how does the prosecutor or anyone for that matter know that a possible intruder did or did not have a weapon? They don't. And that's one of the things that frustrates me about this. I mean, there was a lot of not just speculation, but straight assumptions made by Colleen Barnett or the police or whoever. But But some of the statements she was making. She stated as fact that the if there was a burglar, they didn't have a backpack and they didn't have a weapon. And the fact of the matter is there's no way to know that. We just can't know that. Just because there was a knife found in the bathtub that seems to have come from their kitchen, if that is the murder weapon, that doesn't mean they didn't have another knife. We don't know if there was one person, two people, three people how many weapons there could have been if maybe somebody had a gun and was using it to threaten but wasn't ready to pull the trigger and somebody else pulled a knife there's a million scenarios and there there's reports of things missing and because there's a backpack found in the garage she assumes they don't have any backpack well who's to say they didn't have a backpack or who's to say they didn't have a briefcase or a tote bag or or whatever it was a fanny pack for all that matters there's no way of knowing that stuff and i and, and in my opinion It's unreasonable to make those assumptions. Sarah says, it bothered me that she brought up three times removed hearsay that maybe Sandra and Jim weren't happily married. And I thought that was a little out there, too, especially because she said that she didn't know if it was true or not. Yeah, that was another one that 
that bothered me. I mean, first of all, obviously this wasn't used in court. And then she first states it as fact, and then she kind of backtracked it on a little bit. Uh, and I guess she did. She did qualify it by saying it was second and third hand hearsay. But then, yeah, like you said, Mike, at the, at the end of it, she says, I don't know if it was true or not. To me, that's disappointing that she put that out on, on the podcast to the public. And of course, you know, we edit about, you know, we have an agreement with interviewees that we don't edit our interviews for content. We, you know, we clean up the sound and stuff, but we don't cut that stuff off. It kind of protects everybody. But it's, it's to put that out there, even to put it in someone's mind when it was as it, the at best case, from her words, it was third hand hearsay and she doesn't know if it's true. Well, then, in my opinion, you don't say it. Uh, I do know for me doing a lot of checking. Uh, with family members and and them checking with you know elders in the church even I know they said they spoke with one elder in the church specifically other members of the church that no one seems to believe that was the case no one believes they were in counseling or had any problem again not even the elder in the church and that is where they would go in but through their faith the first stop would be the elder in the church no one seems to think that true no one seems to believe anyone would have said that to her uh, and no one's certainly owning up to it so i don't know what all that means i mean someone could be lying here or there but just the fact that it was uh, by her words that you know third hand hearsay and she doesn't know if it's true um i certainly don't think we should be counting that in in our victimology or our motive category at all because there's there's literally no proof she can't name a source who said it and even if they said it it's they heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone Okay, Allison says, can anyone else corroborate that the dining room chair was normally kept in the closet? So it wasn't in the closet. Uh, it's it's kind of a, of a weird scenario. So it was, it was kind of close quarters. There was, the, there was a closet. And then there's maybe three feet of space between there and the bed. And right there, you know, and, and Jim's body was found in the closet with his feet sticking out towards the bed. And there is what is a dining room chair, uh, not necessarily a chair from their dining room that was sitting there and behind it was this like shower chair, which there's like, like you'd see in a hospital, they're white plastic on top with metal legs, um, no back to it. Uh, that chair I did find out from family members was kept right there. The, the burglar as, as Miss Barnett had said, didn't oddly go into the kitchen and bring a chair in there. The chair was kept right there. And it was, <laughs> as it was put to me, the Pomeranian was too fat to get onto the bed. And they like the dogs on the on the on the bed with them at night, um, but it was too fat to get on the bed, so the chair was kept there so the dog could have a place to jump onto and then jump onto the bed. Because once we release crime scene photos to you guys, you'll see it was a big four poster bed. It was very tall, and he just couldn't get up there. So that chair was always kept right there for the dog. Uh, the shower chair, however, was kept in the closet usually. And what what I was told was that Jim would sit on that chair to shine his shoes in there. So it's weird that the the shower chair was taken out of the closet and was set behind the chair. But at the same time, if we're talking about a scenario where this was burglars who were intending to tie the Melgars up and lock them in closets, and, and Jim's body's found in a closet, and remember, his ankles were already bound, and he had a rope or cord around him, um, around his chest as though they were starting to tie up the you know his arms on the top like they did with Sandy you know it very easily just like in Sandy's situation so so compare the two areas in the closet Sandy was found in 
the chair was taken out of the closet. She was put in the she was left in the closet, and then the chair in that case was used to wedge the door shut. But it was taken out of the closet. In where Jim's found again, there was a stool that was kept in the closet that was taken out of the closet, and Jim's body was inside of the closet. So the the shower chair or stool was normally kept in the closet, was found outside of it. But the chair that was right there that's covered in blood, that chair was kept there. It didn't come from the dining room. Tara says, regarding the sex toys under the pillow, the prosecutor may have given us a little more ammo than she meant to. Were these toys restraints? Were they an anniversary gift? From who? If they weren't new, who put them there and when? My thoughts are that if they weren't restraints, they would be no use in a murder and would be no use to Sandy if she put them there. If Sandy had bought them as a surprise for her husband or even just placed the previously owned toys under the pillow in the evening, that means she had no intention of killing Jim that night. Why plan sexual activities with your husband, whom you want to divorce, right before you murder him? It makes no sense. I will say that, according to Colleen Barnett's theory, the whole plot was to lure him into the bedroom with the promise of sex play in order to get him in a vulnerable position to kill him. So that part, according to her theory, would fit. But, uh, again, this is another, in my opinion, kind of a mischaracterization or misrepresentation of that evidence when she said that, you know, they were, I don't know if she said the words hidden under a pillow, but she certainly said the, the sex toys were under the pillow. Well, they were, in fact, under a pillow, but they were not in, under a pillow in the way that you might suppose. So, like, I pictured, and you, I th- I'm sure you heard me sounding a little bit surprised when she said that, uh, that there's, like, these sex toys up, like, the bed's made and they're under the pillow. That wasn't the case. They were down at the, towards the more towards the foot of the bed. There was and, and it wasn't. I'm not going to get into details. No, they weren't restraints. It was a small package, like um, like the size of a small clutch or a small purse, um, like a zip up little package. It's maybe I don't know six inches by seven inches and and two inches thick. Um, they had a couple of things in it, very small very normal items uh, that were that were in the in that. Uh, and they were down by like the foot of the bed and there happened to be a pillow thrown over them. Uh, so they, they weren't like hidden. They were on the middle of the bed and that could have just been through the struggle. It could have been Sandy or a family member after everything was found and the police are coming in just just pulling that over them out of embarrassment or whatever it was. But these are not, you know, there, there were no restraints. There were no sex toy stash underneath the pillow of the bed they were in the middle of the bed they were just covered up with a pillow john says was the safe open in the closet and also did they ever test jim for drugs as in did sandra roofie him to have control of him uh the safe was not opened however there were bloody handprints and fingerprints on the handle of the safe uh and we're going to get into that a little bit later but just another little little point to think on the police did not collect the safe into evidence. You see the crime scene photos with the bloody smudges that look like fingerprints on them, and the safe was left there. The family, I believe, bagged the safe and has kept it preserved since then because the police never did. But no, it wasn't open. Uh, as far as the talk screen, yes. I, I can say yes because it always is done in, in, in a murder scene with an autopsy, but I do not have the autopsy or medical examiner report yet. So. Uh, my assumption is there was that it was clean, but there was nothing in there. I mean, that would have been a huge part of the prosecution's case if he had some sort of sedative or something inside in, in his bloodstream. And and so I, this is this is an assumption. So don't get me wrong. This is not fact. My assumption is that he had a clean tox report. 
All right, Ashley says, I'm not sure which way I'm leaning yet, but here's my biggest sticking point that points towards Sandy's guilt. The fact that Jamie was found nude. I can't imagine him going to let the dogs in completely nude, which theoretically is where an altercation started. So the prosecutor's theory that Sandy attacked him during sex makes a lot of sense to me. Was there any information about a towel or robe being found in or near the crime scene? Yeah, he wasn't. I mean, he was found nude, yes, but there was a to- his towel was right there. Sandy said that he that when he got out of the tub and and went out to get the dogs that he wrapped a towel around him and where he was found the towel was right there. Yeah, in fact, I think Colleen even mentioned it that the blood spatter expert looked at that that shower bench and you could see the blood and it looked like the towel was covering part of that chair at one point. But yeah, the towel was right there by him. He clearly was wearing a towel um, and was nude under it and then ended up the towel came off during the struggle. Danielle says, was the knife used to kill Jim a knife from the home? From my understanding, and again, I don't have the exact reports, the knife found in the bathtub uh, did come from their house. We did see Mike and I were going through crime scene photos the other day, and there were some photos where you could see they found other knives that were similar, like the same brand, had the same handles on them in their drawers. Uh, And so the assumption there is they they were comparing the two knives to see if it came from the house. think that it did. Uh, but I also haven't heard anyone say anything yet, and again, we don't have the ME's report yet, confirming that, because it was a large knife, this this was like a butcher knife, so um, very similar for those of you who remember in season three, the Kiao Gove murder, a knife like that, it's a big, maybe, she said like six inches, but I think you're talking like a like an eight or nine inch blade butcher knife that on the hilt is, you know, the blade's probably two inches thick down to a point at the end. So you'll be able to tell if that was the knife used for the murders, but we don't have the ME's report yet. All right, now I've got a few questions for you myself, Bob. Okay. First, Barnett teetered when you were asking if they interviewed alternate suspects. She says she thinks they did, then she said she's sure they did, and then named some people that were investigated. But I thought in our preliminary investigation we determined these people weren't questioned. Can you clear that up? Yeah, I don't know if that was legitimate that she didn't remember, but uh, like she mentioned the there was a strange guy that was on the crime scene that night. Um, and she said that, that he was questioned or she thought he was questioned. There's no question about it. He was not. And that's because uh, the detective who investigated the case testified at trial and the defense asked him about that. And he said that he went to his house, left a business card and then never returned, never, never came back. I believe they did actually interview one of the one of their tenants from their from one of the rental properties. Uh, but that's it. That, I know that the family gave them a list of four or five suspects. And none of them, other than the the renter, were ever interviewed by police, and that's a fact that was that was that came out in trial. So I don't maybe she forgot that, but it's pretty clear from from the testimony and the records that they were not interviewed. What about the interviews with the family? So that was another one, and and she she did say that she knows they got statements from them, but that was it. So w- what happened with the family was the night that the that they found Sandy and Jim, they called the police. The police came. They grabbed the family members and had them give a statement as to what happened. And and these are short, you know, I haven't seen them to be able to read them yet, but this is just what happened. Uh, We got there, kind of the story we heard. We got there, we went inside, we heard screaming for help. The chair was in front of the door. We opened the door, found her inside. So this is before any investigation happens, right? So then the police have this theory of her tying herself up and barricading herself in the closet and, you know, using the, the rug sham. What they did not ever do was go interview them, bring them back in and say, okay, describe to me what the scene looked like. Was there, ask them questions like, 
Where was the pillow sham? Was it under the chair? Any of those things, any details of the crime scene, they were never interviewed afterward. And um, Liz, the daughter, was interviewed, and and we have an audio. She recorded that interview, and so it's in dis- and it was turned over to the prosecutor. It's in discovery, uh, so you can hear her being interviewed. But they're never they're not asking her. She starts to tell them about some things that were stolen in the interview. But as far as you know, the, her claiming nothing was stolen, she the prosecutor nor the police ever interviewed any of the family members, any of the witnesses after they got a statement that night to figure any of that stuff out. All right, and I thought it was odd when Barnett insisted nothing was stolen from the house. Because I'm sitting here looking at our investigation board right now, and there's a list of stuff that was taken. I just found it odd that she was so insistent that nothing was gone. What do you think? Was there anything taken from the house? Yeah, I mean, there, there's no question in, in my mind, and, and I suppose th- there could have been some sort of conspiracy, I guess, or she could have taken the stuff and hid it somewhere, maybe somehow uh, without leaving the house that night. But, for example, she talked about the TVs, and she, she made a big point. There was TVs all over the house. That's true. There was a, uh, I believe, a 48-inch TV, big screen TV, a 55-inch big screen TV, an old council TV. None of those were taken. That's true. But in the bedroom was a 32-inch flat screen TV, easy to carry, not very heavy. That was gone. And she kind of flippantly said, well, you know, they claim there was a TV in the bedroom and it was taken, but, you know, we don't know if that was true. But remember, like, we, we've seen the crime scene photos. The cable cord's still there. Yeah. There's a table with, it's like a like an end table with nothing on it. And there's a, there's a coax cable that's sitting there running from there down to a homemade antenna that Jim had made. So, so what was the antenna hooked up to? Also, from what I'm told from the family... And you hear it, it once we once we release um, Liz's interview with the police, you'll hear they said, do you have any record of that? And she said, yeah, my dad was meticulous. And they turned in not only the receipt for the TV, the manual that listed the serial number and model number on it. The police had all of that stuff. Uh, and that's just that's just one of many items. Jewelry that was gone, prescription drugs that were gone. Uh, I know I know that Liz had told the police that. Uh, there was an Xbox stolen, not the one found in the backpack, but there was a second one. The one in the backpack was black. They also had a white one that was gone, and there's an empty space next to the TV where that one was hooked up to. And there was also a DVD or a Blu-ray player that was taken. Um, same thing. There was cords still there where they were connected, but they, that was gone. So, you know, when when we're listening to to Barnett's interview, and you're like, well, this makes a lot of sense, but I need to get this full file to see what I can verify because. You may have heard some restraint because, you know, I, I didn't want to turn this into an argument or debate. I was I'm, I still am extremely thankful she's willing to come on and make her case. But I'm just I was just dumbfounded. Like, how can you make the argument that nothing was stolen? I mean, you if you want to make the argument that somehow Sandy uh, hid that stuff somewhere or got rid of it. fine. But to say nothing was stolen, you know, there's to, to have a coax cable from an antenna sitting on a nightstand with nothing on it. They give you a receipt and a serial number of the TV that was there, and and then to claim in the interview that there was no TV is just or there 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 probably wasn't a TV. Um, it's it seems pretty inconsistent with me, but again, I'm gonna I'm holding back judgment until I get the file. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And then Barnett made a point to say that Sandy made arrangements for the family to come over that day. That's not consistent with what we've heard from the family either, is it? No, Sandy didn't make the arrangements. Remember, this was Jamie's brother, not Sandy's brother, that came over. From what we've been told from all of the family was that Jamie had made arrangements for his family to come over that day for dinner. And it was made a couple of days earlier than that. And so, I mean, yeah, Sandy still knew they were coming, but it's, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's, it's kind of minutiae, but to me, it's an important clarification. Sandy didn't call and make these arrangements. Jim did. All right. Then I was bothered by the way she seemed to glaze over some stuff, such as her saying after she made her argument about the religion that she didn't remember if she argued that in court. We know she argued that in court. That was prominently featured in the Dateline episode. And she began that discussion by saying that was her motive. Yeah, that was another point where, I mean, again, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt and say maybe she forgot that, but you nailed it. That, exactly what you just said. She started the conversation confidently saying that this is what she believes is the motive. And then when, when, we, when I questioned her on it, then she says, oh, well, I don't remember if I even argued that in court. It's like, how can you, all these details she has, right? So remember she went and, and measured the distance from the the tub to the closet, and she took pictures and verified the the sight line and all these other details, but then she can't remember the motive that was the theme throughout the trial and prominently hammered upon in her closing arguments. Yeah, I mean, maybe she did forget, but but I I can clear up that memory. She absolutely it's documented. The if you watch the Dateline NBC episode, it's it's prominently featured of her saying that if she got divorced, then she would be excommunicated from the church and she wouldn't be able to talk to her friends. Matter of fact, that audio is in our preview for uh, this season of her saying that in court. Another thing I noticed was Barnett made it sound like it was obvious that Sandy could see what was happening in the closet from her position in the bathtub. But as you pointed out in the interview, our diagram of the crime scene doesn't seem to support that at all. So what do you make of that? Again, I I mean, I, I started to point out to her that Maybe in a perfect scenario, you could see there. But first of all, you heard her say, if you look over your right shoulder. So the position Sandy said she was sitting in, first of all, was facing the exact opposite direction. So if you're if you're looking at a map. So Sandy is sitting with her back to the crime scene and pointed completely away from it. If she turned around over her right shoulder and looked almost 180 degrees behind her, she would be pointing in that direction. But... I mean, I don't see it. I need to get I, I need to get the full actual two scale diagrams. I don't see how there's an angle where you can see that closet at all. If there is an angle, all things have to be perfect. There was double doors, like French doors, going between the bedroom and the bathroom. If one of those was closed, if the one on the right side was closed, you'd have never seen it. No way. Uh, both of them are closed. Most definitely not. Uh, and then also, she's in an empty house that was on the market. Well, at the time of the murders, remember I said they had this big, tall, four-poster bed. That was right directly between the the tub and the closet. That would have been in the way. Certainly, where Sandy was sitting, she wasn't sitting there staring at the closet. If she had, had craned her neck around and looked back behind her and the doors were open, she might have been able to barely see into that closet past the, but I still don't think so. Even with the bed and everything in the way at the time, I don't think it's possible. All right. And last, in my opinion, the strangest part of that interview was when you were asking Colleen about Sandy's DNA being found on Jim. 
She acted like she didn't know what you meant when you said it would hurt her case if Sandy's DNA wasn't found on him. To me, that's a glaring, obvious problem, but she skimmed right over it. Can you elaborate on that at all? Yeah, and you could hear in the interview I was maybe getting a little frustrated and just moved on because it seemed like we were going in circles. But if you didn't get the point I was making, let me make it now. Jim and Sandy, as she said, were married. You'd expect their DNA to be all over each of them. Well, according to Sandy's story, they had just been in the tub for hours. He got out, dried off, and then went out to go get the dogs. So if that story is true, we have kind of a clean slate. All the, the skin cells, touch DNA, all of that would have been wiped off of him. So then there's this brutal attack, and you hear... Colleen say in her own words that this was a brutal attack. Jim put up a huge fight. He's got defensive wounds all over him. I think it was 17 stab wounds uh, and then like 14 other cutting wounds and then, and then 20 blunt force wounds. And the point I was making was I don't think it's possible for someone to have that fight with him and not leave their DNA all over him. If they sweat on them, they rub their skin against them, he hits them with a fingernail uh, if they happen to cut themselves. You don't stab somebody in a fight with a butcher knife like that 20-plus times and, and not cut your hand on the knife somehow. It's, it seems extremely un- It's possible, I suppose, but it seems extremely unlikely unless you're wearing gloves. Uh, but that was my point was the fact that, and, and, and this is a fact. She seemed to not remember it, but this is a fact. None of... Sandy's DNA was found on Jim's body at all. Zero. None. And my point was, doesn't that hurt your case? Because how can you explain this brutal fight and she manages not to leave a bit of DNA on him? Also, for that matter, none of Jim's DNA was found on Sandy anywhere. So just so you know that there's no physical evidence tying the two together, uh, which to me fits very well with them both getting out of a tub Because, I mean, normally you would find their DNA all over each other. Uh, And Jim, by the way, in case you're wondering, no, he had not been cleaned up. There was blood all over him. It's not like, you know, somebody wiped him down with ammonia or something to get any DNA traces off of him. That wasn't the case. Uh, And none of Sandy's was on there. So that was the point that I was making, was her not leaving any DNA on him, to me, is a pretty good indicator that it wasn't her that was in the middle of the fight. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.